Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion today is Norbert Michel. Dr. Michel is director of our Center for Data Analysis. He studies and writes about financial markets and monetary policy, including the reform of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He also focuses on the best ways to address difficulties at large financial companies in much of his statistical studies in our CBA. Before joining us here, he was a tenured professor at Nichols State University College of Business, and he had previously served as a tax policy analyst here at Heritage as well, and with a focus in global energy. He also worked with the global energy company, Intergy. Please join me in welcoming Norbert Michel. Norbert. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you all for joining us. I'm going to go through uh, and, and introduce our guest, and then uh, the format that we have this morning We'll have both of our guests give a, a sort of intro talk, and then we'll do an interview-style event. And when that's concluded, we do have a mic stand set up uh, for any of the audience members that want to ask some questions, but that will come at the very end. So please think of good questions. Uh, so the, this morning, the authors of the book, we have Sarah Binder to my left. She is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. She's also a professor of political science at George Washington. Uh, she specializes in Congress and legislative politics. Her current research, of course, explores historical and contemporary relationships between Congress and the Federal Reserve. And she has authored and co-authored many publications and books, such as Advice and Dissent, The Struggle to Shape the Federal Judiciary, uh, Stalemate, Causes and Consequences of Legislative Gridlock, and Minority Rights, Majority Rule, Partisanship and the Development of Congress. Her book on legislative gridlock was awarded the 2003 Richard F. Fenno Jr. Prize by the American Political Science Association for the best book published on legislative politics. Must be good. If you're real. <laughs> and she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2015. Sarah received her PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota in 1995 and her bachelor's from Yale in 1986. She joined Brookings in 1995 and George Washington University in 1999. And between 86 and 90, she served as a legislative aide and press secretary to Representative Lee Hamilton from Indiana. And somebody told me that you were in the Obama administration, but is that, that's not, that was, I couldn't find that anywhere. 
Yeah, so I that's that's not. Okay, okay. That's fine. Do the same thing here. Um, and we also have Mark Spindle. Uh, Mark, in 2007, launched the Potomac River Capital LLC, uh, Washington-based registered investment advisor. His firm specialized in managing global macro hedge funds with a specific focus on the intersection of macro, central bank policy, and capital markets. The firm's assets peaked at just under a billion dollars. After a decade, it's been wound down to focus on personal investments, economic policy, and political analysis. Prior to launching Potomac River, Mark spent nearly 10 years at the World Bank, where he was deputy treasurer, treasurer and CIO of the International Finance Corporation, managing about $15 billion in reserves. He was simultaneously a member of the Board of Trustees of the World Bank's $14 billion pension fund, where he helped oversee strategic asset allocation across all investment classes. Before the World Bank, Mark helped establish the ABN AMRO's UK Asset Management Company, and prior to that, he worked at Solomon Brothers, where he was ultimately a senior portfolio manager in their asset management subsidiary. And his degree, his bachelor's degree, was at Cornell in operations research and industrial engineering. And with that, I'll be quiet for a moment, uh, and I will turn it over to Mark. Thank you very much, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation. 2.07 p.m., September 29th, 2008. Who remembers where they were? Anybody? When I called Sarah, my friend, my neighbor, and conveniently an expert on Congress, which had at that exact moment torpedoed George W. Bush's TARP bill. Bond markets were in disarray. The economy was in disarray. To be clear, the Federal Reserve had supported that legislative effort, and for sure, Congress was in disarray. Never let a crisis go to waste, though one could never have known that my conversation with Sarah that day would lead to this. Like the Congress, and clearly the Fed for that matter, Sarah and I had accumulated many debts along the way. This morning is a perfect example. And as befits a project that attempts to break down silos, we had a lot of help and guidance from a range of uh, from, from colleagues, policymakers, staffers, journalists, peers, and other Fed watchers. Again, let me thank Norbert and the Heritage Foundation for arranging this conversation and to all of you for coming. Okay, I'll jump right to a question that we've been asked a lot lately, which is, why did we write this book? An easy explanation, though a decade ago, the financial crisis, we really anticipated that Congress would open the act, so to speak, the Federal Reserve Act. And as a result, we wanted to understand the ways in which they, members of Congress, could shape the outlook for markets, the economy, and monetary policy. And importantly, what would it mean politically and how that might impact the Federal Reserve? The economic history of central banking has been studied extensively. But as we dug deeper into the political history and really watched history being made, we realized the weirdness of a decentralized central bank, a federal reserve. Born of crisis over a century ago and compromise, 
staffed with policymakers in Washington, joined by private sector banking representatives from a dozen century-old districts. Governors appointed by presidents, more recently requiring Senate confirmation, but long overseen by blame-avoiding congressional bosses. Ours is also a rare combination, academic and practitioner. Our hope is that this collaboration, one of us steeped in careful analytical methods, a renowned political scientist, and expert on Congress, the other basically a bond trader, generates a perspective that helps to explain why and how the Fed's relationship with Congress matters. Now that President Trump is actively renovating the Board of Governors, it really is a perfect time to think about monetary politics, and also a great time to be thinking about Congress and the Fed. The protagonists in our story influence markets and the economy, and are influenced by them. Given the recent market volatility, the uptick in interest rate expectations, complicated political polarization, and long-lingering post-crisis politics. We hope this collaboration can shed some new light on how Congress governs the Fed. The myth of independence. Our title gives it away. Conventional wisdom, especially in financial markets, and I think here in DC, endorses a deeply entrenched notion of Fed independence. Generally, people assume the following. The Fed is an independent central bank within the government. Congress created the Fed, sets its goals, and insulates itself from the temptation of inflation. People assume the Fed has tool or instrument independence to do what it wants on monetary policy. And while presidential appointment politics certainly play a part, structural features extraordinary long terms for governors, staggered tenure for the chair, a public-private partnership, again, that federal nature, are all supposed to ensure and solidify its autonomy. And yes, conventional wisdom from even the highest sources pegs the elemental 51 accord as the source of modern Fed independence. We find all of this conventional wisdom mostly myth. And this morning, and through our writing, want to try to convince you that Congress and the Fed are better thought of as interdependent institutions. That's why we wrote the book. Let me turn it over to Sarah, as you heard, professor of political science at George Washington University and senior fellow at, in governance studies at Brookings, and really to whom I owe the biggest debt. Uh, thank you, Mark, and thank you, uh, let me echo Mark's thanks uh, to Norbert and to Heritage for uh, having us here. Um, I can assure you that Mark is more than just a uh, quote-unquote uh, bond trader. Uh, I couldn't have written a book uh, as a student of Congress. I couldn't have written a book that engages questions about financial markets and how Congress affects the Fed and how the Fed affects Congress uh, without this type of uh, collaboration. So as Mark suggested, the main takeaway from the book is that this notion of Fed independence probably obscures more than it reveals about the relationship, and that once we take account of Congress's role in shaping the Fed, we ought better to think of these two institutions as interdependent. 
So what do we mean by interdependent and in what ways are these institutions rely on each other? First, we can take the Fed's perspective looking at Congress, and then we can think about Congress' perspective looking at the Fed. Uh, when asked, the Fed is quite clear. Uh, when Chairman Bank Bernanke was asked at his last press conference whether he had any advice for the incoming Fed chair, uh, Janet Yellen, he said, yes, Congress is our boss. So what makes Congress the boss? Congress, of course, wrote the Federal Reserve Act, 1913, and retains the power to reopen and revise the act. Why is that important? We argue and then try to show in the book that this means that the Fed's power ultimately depends on securing and maintaining political support from Congress and public support more broadly. And that support from Congress is conditional on the Fed's stewardship of the economy. So the Fed clearly depends on Congress, lest the act be open in ways that make the Fed's job harder. And we'll can talk about ways in which that might have happened. But the relationship goes certainly both ways. That is, Congress clearly depends on the Fed. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, we could imagine 535 members trying to make monetary policy quickly. Uh, with all due respect to Congressman Manzullo, that could be a little, uh, a little terrifying uh, to have Congress weighing in on interest, rate, interest rates and so forth. But we argue in the book that it's a little more than the technical difficulty of making monetary policy quickly. That is, if we think about lawmakers and their motivations, certainly motivated by making good public policy, also, as political scientists often say, motivated by getting reelected so that they can pursue their other policy goals. When times are good, we often see lawmakers claim credit. But when times are bad, when the economy sours, lawmakers often seek to deflect blame uh, to other governing bodies. And of course, who better than a powerful Federal Reserve? So why is this interdependence important? Why should we care about that relationship? We argue in the book and then try to marshal evidence to show that this interdependence actually generates a recurring cycle over the Fed's history. We call it crisis, blame, and reform. A financial crisis or an economic crisis comes. Congress looks to figure out what it's going to do. In part, it blames the Fed for its performance and then reopens the act. Sometimes Congress gives the Fed more power. Sometimes it clips its wings. Sometimes it imposes more transparency on the Fed, and sometimes just all of the above. So Dodd-Frank, Exhibit A, certainly, gave the Fed important new supervisory powers over large-scale financial institutions. It limited the Fed's emergency lending powers, known as 13-3. It imposed more transparency on emergency lending, created more oversight in the form of a vice chair for supervision. We argue and try to show, then, the book that this type of cycle actually recurs over and over in the Fed's history. That it's not just the recent financial crisis, but we can go back to the origins of the Fed, 1907, the Great Depression, and at periodic points over the Fed's history. A nice feature of the cycle, we argue, is that it helps resolve a puzzle about Congress, which is why when the economy falters and the blame is quite often uh, to blame, why does Congress often turn around and give the Fed more uh, structural uh, policy power? Well, the more responsibility the Fed has, the more concentrated that power is in the hands of the board in Washington and away from the regional banks uh, at large, the easier it is to hold the Fed accountable uh, when things go wrong. 
So the book looks at this hundred years of relationship between Congress and the Fed, looks at the ways in which the Fed's performance provokes Congress to act, and then looks at the ways in which legislative preferences shape the Fed and its conduct of monetary policy. One of the questions that comes up often as we think thought about the book and, and talk about the book is, can we find some evidence that legislative action or threats of action really do check the power and independence of the Federal Reserve? Ultimately, our thesis and the research we think uh, proves that, but many of the issues that, uh, that we touch on in the book, uh, we think are really illustrated in a contemporary, uh, contemporary example. Um, what we found in a, a caveat is exploring what the Fed would have done in the absence of these congressional threats or action itself, the so-called counterfactuals. They're hard to find. Economic theory, and central bankers themselves tell us that they have the autonomy to choose the monetary tools, to choose the way in which they conduct monetary policy. Our sense is that theory doesn't square very well with the Fed's efforts, really recent efforts, to adopt an inflation target. There are debates about whether an inflation target is a goal or a tool. We think it has features of both. And it's certainly, this targeting is a tool used by many central banks around the world. Very simply, the idea is that by setting a numeric target for inflation, you can help set expectations about prices and thus expectations about future monetary policy, anchoring those expectations. Bernanke, an academic really closely aligned with the theory behind inflation, and tar behind inflation targeting, started advocating for this target when he joins the Board of Governors in 2002. But there's a political problem. The Fed has a dual mandate. It has to worry about employment and inflation. Focusing on the target for prices only covers half of that mandate. In fact, Janet Yellen, the previous Fed chair, explored this topic almost a decade earlier in the mid-90s. Greenspan nixed it. He liked the strategic ambiguity of having no target officially declared. But when, Bank when Bernanke came in, associated with this inflation targeting, he knew that putting such a target in place required the consent of Congress. You see this in transcripts of FOMC debates before the crisis and after. Don Cohn, in December 2008, vice chair of the Board of Governors, quote, having an inflation target won't have any effect if it is repudiated by the Congress, unquote. We hear it in Bernanke's memoir. He had approached Barney Frank about scaffolding the target. The powerful chairman of the House Financial Services Committee at the time pushed back, arguing that emphasizing one side of the inflation employment duality, especially during a recession, would send the wrong signal. Ultimately, it took Bernanke a decade to convince his boss. Sensitive to that pushback, the target needed explicit permission from Congress to be announced. More recently, there's been talk from current and former FOMC members about raising the target. We hear that from Stan Fisher, former vice chair, leading academic scholar of central banking. 
influential members of the Fed system, Rosengren, Kocher Lakota, and more pronounced John Williams, who's in the process of transferring from San Francisco to New York to become the vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee and the president of the District Bank in New York. Let's hear, if we can, if our video works, exactly what the boss has to say. And this is Janet Yellen appearing before the House Financial Services Committee, her second-to-last meeting in July of last year. We think it's clear when there are calls for the Fed, and in important cases by the Fed, to increase the target. In this case, Republicans in Congress push back against any change. Don't do anything without talking to us. Conventional wisdom again suggests the Fed claims independence. But clearly, resulting from all of our research, it's acutely sensitive to the need to secure political support for its policy choices. This is what mythic independence looks like. And with that, we'd be pleased to consider any questions. Thank you. Thanks, sir. I'm going to start off uh, just we'll go through a few questions, and then when we get to the end, we'll have the mic stand, and anybody can come up and ask a question. Um, but we won't, be, we won't be too long. Don't worry. Don't worry. You don't have to wait too long. Um, I, I've always found this topic fascinating uh, and realized as I started researching it that I was sort of surprised. My, I was surprised to find that I was kind of in the minority. I thought, independent in what way? I mean, if a creature of Congress, how could they be independent of anything? And then people would say, well, no, but they're, they're really they're independent of the executive branch. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, my friend Alex Pollack pointed me to a, a, an Arthur Burns quote where uh, somebody was asking him about his relationship with Nixon and why, he, they, why they seemed to be doing what the Nixon administration wanted. And he said, well, we have to do what the president wants or we'll lose our independence. Uh, and and th so that's always been my, my you know, sort of view of, of, of these things. So I, I enjoyed the book for that reason, uh, just to see many more examples of, of how this stuff is, is actually played out. Um, so my first question is going to sort of stick with that executive branch theme. Um, a couple of weeks ago on Fox News, Chris Wallace asked Secretary Mnuchin um, about the market's negative reaction. Uh, it, they had just announced their tariff policy, and um, so he was he was hammering Mnuchin about that. And the secretary said, well, a lot of things happened last week, um, including the Fed. And he was referring, of course, to a rate hike. And it was pretty clear to me that he was implicating the Fed for this, this market swoon. Um, is that, in, in your research, is that sort of a, a normal blame game thing that goes on? Or is there, is there something more there, do you think? 
So, yes, I think there is a strong history of presidents' frustrations with the tightening of monetary policy. Uh, there's a famous meeting, William McChesney Martin, the longest-serving chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, was called down to Texas to LBJ's ranch uh, and came back and described as being taken to the woodshed uh, for, uh, for tightening policy. Um, I think the Burns relationship with Nixon is another example uh, that you touch on, Norbert. Uh, I think famous uh, turn of phrase by George H.W. Bush, who talked about reappointing Alan Greenspan only to be disappointed by the, the Greenspan rate hikes. Um, and of course, the more recent frustration that President Trump and his administration are having with uh, the possibility and reality of higher rates. Um, I think we wrote the book because some of the executive uh, Fed relationships are well documented. They tend to, they tend to make nice quotes. There, there have been these stories. Um, but uh, you know, I think to focus on the legislative relationship, going back to that Bernanke advice for incoming Chair Yellen as to who the actual boss is. Um, I think one feature that stands out for us is the relationship that presidents do have with their own appointees. Um, that to the extent these long-tenured governors' staggered terms tends to uh, perhaps put uh, politicians of other parties into the White House and dealing with a Fed mostly appointed by uh, uh, by the opposite party would create some of that tension. What seems a little interesting to us, um, President Trump has the uh, ability now and is in the course of reappointing almost the entire Fed board. He will, in a sense, own it. Uh, and I think his and uh, Secretary Mnuchin's criticism is a little bit odd in that these are their own appointees, but maybe not odd in uh, the president's uh, seeking to perhaps pre-blame uh, the Fed for any possible downturn and certainly will seek credit, uh, claim credit, if things do go well. In the book, we did not document this, but it seems to be established that this norm of executive restraint and from criticizing the Fed and from the Treasury of not commenting the dollar, that that's relatively recent, that it seems to be a 1990s Clinton administration through uh, Bush and then Obama. But... Um, Historically, once you take the Fed and put it in this longer 100-year history, we, as Mark suggested, we really, if anything, there's very little evidence of that type of norm, right? And certainly the famous 1951 accord um, has full-fledged um, uh, war going on uh, between the executive and, and the Fed. Let, let's talk about that, the 51 accord. I'm glad you went there. Um, I wanted to bring that up. This is, you know, sort of, I think, another... I, well, you can you guys can correct me, but if uh, I think it's sort of another myth, this is sort of um, preached as the, the the time when the Fed sort of threw off its master and you know just became uh, its own entity and and so on. Is, is that really what happened? And is that um, is that really what does the accord really say? And what what really happened there? Your, your chapter your chapter is the most uh, one of the more extensive chapters that I've read about the Accord itself. So the the Accord, just to bring everybody up to speed, we come, and this is the very shortened version, uh, you come out of World War II and as an effort to help uh, Treasury finance the war, there had been essentially an informal but strong uh, agreement between the Treasury Secretary and the Fed that rates would be kept low in essence no matter what. 
Uh, and that, it was called the PEG, so the rates were pegged very low, both short and long-term rates. And the question became, as you got farther and farther away from the war into the, through the mid-40s, and you have inflation starting to appear, what was going to happen to the PEG? And when we come into the Korean War and more pressures on the Fed to keep the rate uh, low so that the government can finance uh, the debt, A, from the war, but now from uh, ongoing into the Korean War. So the question was when and when and under what circumstances would the Fed break uh, that tie, really the subordination of monetary policy to Treasury, right, to the fiscal authority. Um, there's well-torn stories about the dynamics and the drama that went on between Harry Truman and the White House, between Secretary Treasurer, and then between uh, Eccles at, uh, at the Fed. And the conventional wisdom, as Norbert suggested, uh, is that there was some sort of uh, accord, sort of happy occasion where there was a deal whereby essentially after this uh, conflagration in the front pages of the newspaper and so forth, that uh, Treasury backed off, President backed off, and that's the origins, we say, of, of independence. They write an accord. They say monetary policy and debt management. The Fed will do monetary policy. The Treasury will do debt management. What we try to do is to untangle that story in the book, which is to really ask the question, first of all, well, why? Right? Why were they able at that point in time, with the pressures of the Korean War and so forth, why, in fact, was the Fed able to break away from Treasury? Uh, what we try to connect the dots on is what exactly was Congress doing at the time. Uh, there was certainly an effort uh, by Paul Douglas, the Senate, uh, and the Joint Economic Committee to essentially, and of course the Joint Economic Committee can't legislate, but it can certainly signal congressional preferences. Um, there was an effort, in essence, to threaten to legislate to really solidify who's doing monetary policy and uh, who's doing debt management. So what we try to piece together is the ways in which um, Congress and particularly important senators put their thumb on the scale for the Fed as a way of securing, getting them to step up uh, and to get Treasury to back down. It helped that the Treasury Secretary was in the hospital for two weeks of eye surgery. Let's not forget the contingent historical fact that might have <laughs> made some small difference. Um, but the, the outcome of what we argue in the the chapter is that legislators' willingness to put the thumb on the scale for federal for the Fed's preferences made a difference, and then, as we said, um, opens up what we call the divorce that the new court, and importantly, reminds the Fed how they got that independence from Treasury, which is to say, Congress retains the right to legislate, and we may in fact continue to do that um, if you're not in fact going to be more responsive to the ways in which Congress is looking forward. So do you think, so transitioning or sticking with executive branch stuff and, and uh, debt management, for lack of a better term, do you believe that um, based on the way they're running now, based on the way that things happen now, based on the way Congress interacts with the Fed, based on the administration, if deficit gets, if deficits get too far out ahead, do you think that anybody would need to tell the Fed anything? Or do you think that the Fed would sort of accommodate uh, additional borrowing, additional deficit financing? Do you think that that's do – you, do you believe that they've, they've become so independent that they would just go their own way and that would be the end of it? Or do you think that they would be accommodative? That's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm asking. Based on the dynamics that you see historically. I think there's a little bit 
of a danger, though the appointments so far, uh, I think, have tended to follow a more traditional uh, sort of pragmatic uh, approach to monetary policy making. Um, the challenge for Bernanke, and I think he was upended by his uh, communication about the balance sheet, just sort of sp speaking specifically about the extent to which they might tolerate the, the deficit, um, was handled a lot more gracefully by Chair Yellen, and I think the handoff to Chair Powell has so far been smooth. Um, but to the extent that the supply of treasuries through the treasury issuance, the deficit, and the possibility that the Fed is no longer such a supportive uh, purchaser through their large-scale asset purchase program. They're, in fact, winding down that program. Um, I think there is the possibility that interest rates could suffer some kind of accident, a spike higher. Um, and I would be a little nervous that a Trump-appointed Republican uh, Federal Reserve Board might be a little bit more willing to tolerate that kind of supply. I, I don't think there's evidence of it yet, um, but uh, I think it's one of the things that we hear in the market, and I, I think, you know, again, to the extent that this is not a totally independent entity, uh, I think it's something to be watchful for. I think the second feature is the extent to which um, fiscal stimulus, particularly at very low levels of unemployment, um, really uh, meet up with a Federal Reserve that is tightening, uh, tightening policy, raising rates. Um, and again, I think that executive branch uh, sort of perspective, the tweets by the President, the comments by the, the Treasury Secretary, suggest that they really don't want the Fed to be tightening as aggressively uh, while their fiscal stimulus is, uh, is carrying forward. So I think there, is, there, are, there are some risks. It's obviously hard to handicap them fully. Um, uh, but I think a, a, a more independent Fed would probably be moving even more aggressively or may move uh, more aggressively to tighten monetary policy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so similar question, and then we'll open it up to the audience so that we'll have time. Um, but this one deals with more congressional interplay with the Fed. Where we have a, a framework right now with interest on excess reserves in a lower, fair, relatively low interest rate environment compared to historical norms, um, the amount of money being paid to the larger banks that are sitting on those reserves are in the billions, but they're not yet to the hundreds of billions. Um, but if interest rates get back up to, even short-term interest rates get back up to historical norms, that would change. And Based on the Fed's balance sheet wind-down schedule, uh, you know, within a couple of years, they're still going to basically be in the same spot they're in now, and interest rates, short-term interest rates, could easily be back up over 3 or close to 4%. At that point, we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars going out the door, primarily to large banks. How do you see that playing out for our supposedly independent Fed? Well, I put your finger on the one... Probably the one issue that rem that unites the left and the right on the financial services committee, right? It's mm -hmm. it's sort of unusual to hear uh, Hensarly, as chairman, uh, raise mm -hmm. the issue of not just the optics but the policy behind it, and then to have Maxine Waters jump in and say, "Gee, maybe this is something we can work together on," which is not mm -hmm. something you hear all typically that often right. on that on that committee. So it puts it raises the political risk. 
for the Fed. Uh, and that is a tool, like really a tool, where they could place pressure on. Uh, and that is the main instrument that, <laughs> that they have, um, which is potentially problematic for uh, Powell and potentially Mexico. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I think the, the, the reference Sarah makes um, you know, was in, in a conversation, similar conversation that Chair Yellen had with, uh, with Chairman Hanserling. Um, he raised this notion of interest on reserves as a subsidy to banks. Um, and she had always enjoyed, I think, a very warm relationship with Democrats on the committee. Uh, and uh, Representative Waters jumped in to, to say exactly that, that this is an area where she was surprised to learn that the Federal Reserve was funding banks uh, in, in this regard. Um, there's a second issue which I think comes in your you know, in your um, uh, your scenario, which is that the Fed has been making extremely high remittances to Treasury through its its balance sheet on the order of a hundred billion dollars, and that was true as long as the shape of the yield curve uh, was so-called positive, so that the interest they were earning on their uh, longer maturity bonds was higher than what they were paying to these financial institutions. As the Fed begins to and has begun to raise interest rates, if the yield curve flattens and inverts, those remittances will turn into losses. And I think uh, almost a slightly higher profile risk that this Federal Reserve and its large balance sheet presents is the idea that they would have to declare a loss. Um, these have tended to be fairly anodyne issues within the sort of dark art of central banking funding financial institutions is, after all, what the Fed was set up to do in 1913. Um, and I think there is some concern that this dark art is so technically complicated um, and yet needs, in a democracy like ours, it needs buy-in from the public, i.e. the public's representatives in Congress. And I think the possibility that they they hit some of these banana peels along the way, I think, is is a real risk to to the institution and a risk to the institution's ability to fight another crisis. Uh, and I think part of what we tried to do in the book is go back and talk about this relationship in a way that the institution was born of crisis and has repeatedly faced the kind of economic downturns or financial panics that tend to create the, the interdependence. So I know I said I have one more question, but now I have one more question. <laughs> so. Would some sort of independence, whatever that, that independence might be, would that be desirable here? Or is there too much of a trade-off between independence and transparency? I mean, in our system, what, what do you think? Do you think that needs to be addressed or should? It's, in the, it's easy to answer in the abstract, which is there are no more important questions in democracy than how to have a strong economy and, mm -hmm. to, and to have to see right the, the consequences here are huge uh, for businesses, for families, and, and so forth. Uh, but in a democratic society, there is some expectation <laughs> that the legislature is going to reflect financial, is going to re reflect public preferences. And so uh, the, the amount of delegations to say that we're going to not have uh, a, a public accounting for how powers we wield over there seems, seems potentially problematic. I, I would just add that I, I think the notion of central bank independence monetary policy independence has grown up in a fear of inflation and that taking the politicians hands off the tiller 
to avoid that inflation-seeking temptation makes a lot of sense. Um, and clearly problems with that kind of relationship in the late 60s, early 70s, the Burns-Nixon relationship, I think, really snowballed in a, in, in, in a negative way. But the history of this particular central bank, this Federal Reserve, and the last hundred odd years is one not of inflationary problems. It's disinflationary problems. It's a financial panic in 1907. It's the Great Depression uh, in, uh, in the early 30s and mid-30s. It's the most recent um, global financial crisis. Episodes where independence on its own may not be optimal. I mean, Sarah talked, and, and Norbert, I think your question's about fiscal policy. There's always going to be a fiscal and monetary policy trade-off. There are always going to be legislative objectives. You may need a very large balance sheet. You may need to fund banks. You certainly need a lender of last resort policy, part of what Dodd-Frank did in clipping the Fed's ability to lend directly to institutions may create some, some other issues down the road if they need to get a co-sign, a co-signature from the Treasury Secretary. So I, I think the, the history is one that's dotted by these kinds of financial panics and one where independence wouldn't necessarily make the, 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 the challenges any easier. Let's see. Uh, audience wants to ask any questions have to ask you to, if you could use the mic stand, George, but <laughs> we don't, we're, we're in the middle of intern classes and we don't have uh, interns to bring mics to people right now. So it's just a couple of days this happens. <laughs> Schedule it. Run the mic around. No, it's okay. Hi, Carl Golovin, domain reference, endthefed.info. Uh, at that site, I would uh, just encourage you to view uh, Roger Sherman's writing in 1752, a caveat against injustice or an inquiry into the evils of a fluctuating medium of exchange. He's the one who really put the words in the Constitution, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And arguably, that's monetary law. And I find that the word policy, it's by policy that we actually go beyond what the law provides or we go around it. And isn't the interdependence between the Fed and Congress really based on, yeah, Congress has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Well, it doesn't say print, it says coin, because Roger Sherman, Andrew Jackson, when he ended the second bank, he made it very clear, if you let there be another central bank, the largest corporations, the banks, the politicians will conjure more and more paper, credit, money, into existence until the wealth of those who labor is stolen and the schemes of the corporations and politicians, bankers, will be facilitated. Uh, we will lose our liberties in the process, the ability to just work for an honest unit of account. So pardon me for going on and on, but uh, the interdependence, isn't it, because Congress sort of is delegated to the Fed the ability to create money, um, but yet it isn't really money because what's the definition of a dollar? Uh, in law, is there a definition so Carl, of dollar? So, what is so what, where is your question, Carl? Thing? I have to I have to stop you, Carl. What is your question? Well, let's start there. What is the definition in law of a dollar except a weight of gold or silver? Thank you, Carl. Thank you. That's uh, I do have to remind everybody though, please uh, to not to, to ju just to ask questions if you could, um, and also remind you that. 
uh, Sarah and Mark here are not or are not here to talk about the constitutional definition of a dollar. I don't know that they're really experts in that field, but if they want to answer that question, they're. Well, I, I mean, one, one interesting point is, uh, and and we we have thought about uh, some of the issues you raise. Importantly, in a way, the Federal Reserve is the third bank of the United States, and some of the learning, particularly around the sort of Jackson uh, decision to kill the second bank of the United States, um, was how did this one stick around? How, what, what, what in the design of the Federal Reserve gave it the, uh, the stature to survive whereas the first and second ones hadn't? Uh, and I talked about the genesis for the book and, and, and the conversations that Sarah and I have had for over a decade. And part of it is that Federal Reserve, that taking some of the power away, certainly at the onset, from the political class in Washington, the banking class in, uh, in New York, and distributing this sort of decentralized uh, federal system gave it some legs. Um, and yet, as Sarah talked about, the sort of crisis that we identify, and the, or the, excuse me, the cycle that we identify in the book, has over the last century or so concentrated centralized power back into the the board here in Washington. Even the interest on reserves is a board of governor decision. It's not an FOMC decision. Um, and those district banks, it's not super clear what their responsibilities are, other than as marketing agents for the system. Um, and I think I might be worried that if you concentrate power too much or you go too far, some of the risks that you identified might wind up being existential for the institution. And not exactly touching on the coin of the realm question, but I think in terms of how did this central bank survive whereas the first and second bank of the United States didn't. And if only to remind us that they don't have to survive. These are not constitutional Entities. They were created by, by Congress. That's right. Thank you. George? Yes, thanks, uh, Norbert. Uh, George Selgin, Cato Institute. I have a, a couple uh, uh, topics I wanted to comment on or ask questions about. Uh, one concerns interest on reserves. Uh, Mark, you had referred to that in a, a couple places in passing as just the, the Fed doing its job of financing the banks. But my question there is, isn't interest on reserves doing just the opposite of what the Fed's supposed to do? It's got the Fed, it's got the banks financing the Fed because it's the Fed paying them to keep, uh, uh, to finance its own asset holdings to the tune of several trillion uh, by, by paying them interest on reserves. And that that's the question. Another one is, under this regime, because the banks pile up reserves willy-nilly, excess reserves, seems like the old connection between deficit financing and uh, fear of inflation is broken. That is, now the Fed's uh, expansion of its balance sheet doesn't con con um, carry any necessary consequences for the inflation rate. Doesn't that uh, pose a, an additional... How does that change the political economy of Fed independence if there's no inflation consequence of balance sheet expansion? The last thing, very quickly, was on the Fed Accord. Um, 
I, I don't see that as much of a victory for Fed independence as, as so much that as a, an example of miscalculation on the executive's part, because um, you'll remember that it was uh, Thomas McCabe who was the person who won that uh, victory, which was not a tremendous victory in itself, but a, a limit on how much accommodation the Fed would provide in a specific case. Truman responded by firing him and appointing uh, McChesney Martin, who was the Treasury representative uh, before then, with the intent that Martin would go along with the executive's uh, uh, preferences. And in fact, uh, he didn't, whereupon Truman called him a traitor. But if, if Truman's expectations had been right, everything would have worked out and, he, and the Fed would have gotten its comeuppance and that would have been that. I wonder what you have to say about that interpretation. Thanks. It's just three questions. Can I work backwards? Yeah, I think it's important, as George just did, to point out some nuance in whether or not uh, what precisely the executive was doing and how well calculated this was. And there may be more room for mistakes than our count would uh, would suggest. Is it possible, so it's certainly possible that Truman thought he was getting the better of the system by his maneuver here uh, with McMartin, uh, McChesney Martin. So, uh, and, and that, certainly willing to say that that's part of what's going on here. Um, but at the same time, we still do have these legislative dynamics going on that the combination of miscalculation plus some senators having quite strong views on both sides of the aisle still making a difference here. Uh, there's also, I think, possibly unintended, I don't know if there's intended or unintended consequences of the accord in that the creation of basically a, a bond market that then helps Treasury in order to do its financing going forward. That, I don't know if that's intended or unintended consequence of, of the accord, uh, but certainly has uh, digs in and solidifies, I think, cements this differences between debt management on the one hand and monetary policy on the other. But the point's very well taken about the, the difficulty uh, and the need to be careful about um, finding clauses here when there are multiple, probably uh, both calculation and miscalculation potentially going you know, I think the, the sort of first two issues that you raised, particularly inflation, has been one that uh, you know, has, has really confused Fed watchers, market participants. I think the initial concerns about not just the very large balance sheet, but uh, the very low level of interest rates, if not zero, and in a lot of the rest of the developed world, negative interest rates. Um, the inflationary expectations or the inflationary concerns have not manifested. Uh, and I think that has begged the question of if, if a central bank can't, through lower interest rates and through a large balance sheet, create inflation when they, in a sense, need to. Um, Japan, the apotheosis of this, uh, this concern. Then uh, I really think you do run the risk of sort of central banking uh, sort of falling in on itself. Um, you know, I think the Fed sort of leadership was never that concerned. Um, 
I think they ramped up the balance sheet. There were some questions in terms of seeking counterfactuals where we went back to public statements that Bernanke had made as a sitting governor in 2002, recommendations, if you will, for what the Bank of Japan should be doing at that time. It's not clear that Chair Bernanke followed the advice of Governor Bernanke. So was he, in some sense, checked by, um, by politics or by some of these, uh, these legitimate concerns? Um, I think, George, you have hit uh, you know, the one potential um, sort of concerning point in this payment to banks. Um, at the end of the day, I think the central bank needs to do two things. It does need to exist as a lender of last resort. Um, and that goes back to sort of genesis of this particular Federal Reserve. And ultimately, in a market sense, control the short rate. If they cannot control the short rate, the price of essentially overnight money, um, I'm not sure that you really have a functional central bank. And I think one of, again, back to Norbert's questions, one of the elements that concerns us going forward is the optics and the reality of higher and higher payments to banks in, uh, in the pursuit of trying to, to nail the, uh, the, the overnight rate. And I think that's an area where the scaffolding and the plumbing uh, of the New York Fed and the, its relationship with the Board of Governors, as we said, the setting of interest on reserves is not a district bank decision, i.e. it's outside of the purview of the FOMC. Um, and it might be the first time where we see legislative action to devolve some responsibility. Uh, I think the district banks are beginning to lobby, perhaps to Congress, perhaps to the board, to get back into the business of helping set that, that rate. Again, those are institutions that are largely, um, maybe nominally, but largely governed by uh, a board of directors, half of whom are appointed by private banks in the region. Um, that's been an issue that we've confronted uh, in our own research and in, in conversations that uh, that public-private partnership, that governance of district banks by private enterprise, private banks in the region, um, does that make sense in the 21st century, what might have made sense uh, in, uh, in, in the early 1900s? Uh, I, Joe Postel, I'm a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and a visiting fellow here um, at Heritage. I have a question actually about the Congress side of this relationship as opposed to the Fed. Uh, the typical story political scientists have constructed about Congress is that over the last three decades or so, its oversight capacities have withered. Polarization has uh, driven oversight down, the lack of, or the decline of committees, um, and many other factors have contributed to this. Yet the story you're telling is actually about a Congress that's relatively engaged at the committee level and conducting meaningful oversight or gaining meaningful control over the Fed. So I'm wondering, does this case study or this example, is it an exception to the general rule about what's happened to Congress? Or is it somehow a, a case study that helps us modify our understanding of the contemporary Congress? Um, so that's a great, <laughs> that's a great question, right? If this is as if Congress is as dysfunctional, meaning the difficulty it has addressing public problems today, then then potentially there's a missing link here uh, that that the Congress in fact can respond to crisis and reopen the act. Um, I, I think there are two or three ways to think about this. Um, 
first, uh, across the longer historical period, even through 2009, 2010, which is certainly in the arc of polarized dysfunctional Congress, we do see a remarkable congressional response. Um, remarkable, for better or for worse, depending on your views about Dodd-Frank, right? Uh, a pretty major reopening of the act and a shifting of uh, responsibilities and uh, allocation of new powers and clipping of transparency and so forth. So even as recently as under a decade ago, in the midst of dysfunction, we do have um, a reactive Congress legislating. We certainly see, we document about a dozen and a half episodes over that century where Congress does reopen, reopen these matters. Um, I th think the thing to, or two other ways to think about it here, one of the ways, and Mark sort of suggested this in thinking about the reserve banks and how they've been entrenched in outside Washington, um, one of the ways in which we argue that Congress, quote unquote, governs the Fed is by the choices that it makes about the structure of the Fed along the way. And so to the, if you listen to Bernanke particularly, I don't know that I heard Yellen say this, but the question, why doesn't the Fed make a forecast? Right? Why isn't there like a, a single forecast? And Bernanke would say, when, when we're fully staffed, there are 19 people around the FOMC, and we can't, in fact, right? We're, we're too large an institution, too diverse an institution, roughly, um, to act like other cent central banks. But why is that? It's because of choices, congressional choices made a century ago, first about where to put those banks, roughly, and what powers they're going to have. And by devolving power in that way, they've hardwired support for federal-style reserve bank that today affects um, policymaking. And we try to show other ways, right? The mandate, right? the dual mandate, which is not unheard of in a comparative sense, right? Mm -hmm. But with that dual mandate in place, you have a Fed over the last decade and coming out of the crisis, albeit inflation has been low, but right, we've got, you tell me, um, unemployment below Right, what we think of as uh, very low. Well, more more importantly, below what every sitting member of the FOMC reveals as their notion of full employment. So, what we think of full employment isn't particularly important. But if, in their statement of economic projections, every member of the committee says we are beyond full employment, and if if that is a consequence in part, and you'll hear Yellen's and as chair pointing to the dual mandate. So, yeah, I certainly don't want to say that, that Congress today is always a fine-tuned oversight machine. Um, but we, and, and it's a little hard to show, but we do try to show, certainly, look, the, the Fed fights transparency requirements starting in the 1970s. They don't want these transparency requirements, and I think in part they don't want them because it means that what they want to do, they need to justify to what Congress isn't going to negatively react to. Um, so, right, Negative uh, interest rates. We've not really heard hide or hair of them here, but we see them elsewhere. Um, seems hard if Congress doesn't like interest rates. Says this reserves are probably not going to like the optics of negative interest rates. They didn't like low interest payments to seniors and savers. Right. Let alone no, let alone <laughs> negative interest rates. I mean, I, I'm certainly not an expert on Congress in general, and I, but I mean, with this entity, it, there's there's a convenient blame uh, that, they, that they can always cast, no matter what the economy is doing. Somebody's not going to like something in there, right? So whether it's inflation or unemployment or interest in excess reserves or low interest rates or high interest rates, they have that opportunity. And then depending on the dynamic, 
you know, they can they can open up the act. Um, but there's definitely a, a convenience there to be able to blame any economic problem on the institution. I think it's a two-way street. You know, we, we, we quote in the book uh, McChesney Martin at the 50th uh, anniversary of the Federal Reserve in 1964 um, described the Federal Reserve's mandate really to bear those slings and arrows and the opprobrium of blame. And, it's you know. Uh, both well. We think so. Yeah. Uh, we think so. So you mentioned Congressman Frank earlier in the discussion. Uh, today, which members of Congress seem to have the greatest influence on the Fed? Certainly, Chairman Henserling has been very crystal clear, I think, about the bounds of where he wants to see, uh, not always liking what he's seeing at the Fed, but being clear about the boundaries at which he uh, would like to see the Fed not step over, for sure. Um, you know, I think the, the sort of members in the House and the, the senators, Senator Crapo certainly, who have the oversight responsibility, um, you know, I think a sort of interesting aspect of that responsibility uh, appears in discretion versus rules-making um, monetary policy, is that I think there's a cohort uh, in the House certainly that really wants to take away some of the discretion that we've talked about in the Fed's ability to set, uh, to set interest rates and, and set monetary policy. And in a way, does that make the institution more or less uh, independent? But I, I think there are, um, you know, there is a push to remove that discretion. Chair Yellen, in her uh, informational reports, her monetar monetary policy reports, has begun or began to introduce the notion, uh, the notion of a rules box of how the Fed is looking at, at rules. Um, all of those rules have some invisible targets and invisible arrows. What is potential growth? What is uh, the, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment? Uh, what is inflation? Janet, uh, Janet Yellen has talked about some of the mysteries in terms of just measuring uh, what inflation is. So it's hard to know what a, uh, a, a robot uh, in uh, in the Board of Governors would be doing because you still need some discretion in, in setting those rules. But I think rather than name a specific member, I think those those moves to establish uh, establish more um, uh, more rules uh, rules based monetary policy relative to uh, to discretion are an example where you know I think some of the the sort of members see. Um, see the sort of better path for the Fed. I can't think of anybody more active than uh, Chairman Henserling. And, I mean, they mm -hmm. actually passed the bill in the House, and that's his bill. And yes. So I, uh, I guess my vote there. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, obviously the, the, the midterms in November and who will run that committee. Um, but I think he's also had very strict, as you heard in his in exchange last summer, very strict ideas about what the inflation target should be, and should there be any inflation at all? Should the target be quite a bit lower, let alone uh, the possibility of raising or designing a symmetric uh, rule, which differs from what Yellen, as head of that committee uh, in 2011-2012, uh, in put in place? They were very clear as to how inflation should be measured. And even now, you're hearing very senior members of the committee and the board sort of think about you know, how they could uh, push that target higher at a time when Hanserling is very clearly saying, don't you touch that. One more question? Yeah, I'm uh, Don Manzullo. I was a member of Congress from 1993 until 2013. I sat on financial services on the capital markets. 
um, and also financial institutions. And I just um, – members of the committee don't sit around and have coffee or beer and discuss interest rates. I mean, this uh, – Congress is always reactive. It's not uh, – you don't sit down and say, well, what's the best monetary policy we should have? And so let's invite the – all the key players in it and, and try to decide what to do. Um, the only example, and, and let me give you the example on it, when, when the housing market crashed in, in 2007 and 2008, I was examining um, or questioning, rather, uh, Bernanke as to why the Fed did not um, insist upon written proof of a person's salary until October 1st. And um, and he didn't quite have the answer to that, but one would think, well, that's the reason why he had all the liar loans. But those were private houses that were issuing those mortgages. But the Fed really had the power uh, to insist that if you were buying those mortgages, that the underlying uh, under the underlying underwriting standard had to be that the person was was creditworthy, but it it didn't do that. Um, and you can blame the Fed, uh, blame it on the Fed. You can blame both the presidents Bush and Clinton, uh, who really wanted the uh, Fannie Mae and and Freddie Mac to buy uh, those those bundled mortgages, as to which there were underwriting problems, but. What happened to to my constituents um, is the credit freeze, and especially coming from an area of of a lot of manufacturing activity. I mean, this was deadly. Uh, the mar uh, mark to what's called mark to market uh, method of, of of examining whether or not something was was stable, um, or, or the method of evaluating it. And then the the other problem that was the the um, as the FDIC would go in and examine the banks, uh, they would put this artificial limit on the amount of loans that could go to manufacturing facilities. It was the <clears throat> innate distrust and ignorance as to what exactly manufacturing is in this country. In fact, I asked um, the chairman of the Fed. Greenspan, I think on three or four different occasions, I said, what do you mean when you say that the manufacturing jobs in this country will be um, replaced by high-end um, – I can't think of, of what, it, what the word that he used. And he could never explain what that was. And so the, the problem has always been members of Congress have the practical – impact taking place in their congressional district coming up against people who are professors, uh, economists, running think tanks uh, that have not been on the streets uh, to see the impact of, of, of economic policy. I just, I just wanted to share that with you. I, I, I'm fascinated by the discussion that you're having here. My office is a half a block from yours, so coffee's on you for the first time. And, uh, and I, I want to thank you for the presentation. I think it's been very enlightening. Thank you.
Thank you. And thank you all. Or are we good? Okay. Thank you all very much for attending. Uh, and if you want to come up and talk to Sarah and Mark, please do for a minute. Thank you all.